0: Hi friends, welcome or welcome back to the Oscillator Stone. Child is currently babysitting a few farm animals, and she forgot to bring our recording equipment. Thusly, this episode's introduction is being made by a robot child. Then on for the next installment of the Chakra series featuring Layman Pascal of the Integral Stage. This episode's focus is the Ajna Chakra.
1: Enjoy. Welcome. Uh, I'm here with Layman we are um we're discussing the ajna chakra in a series of chakra related explorations together i think we'll begin this particular exploration um with a face punching ritual <laughs> uh, <laughs> as is indicated by the x um yeah. on your forehead there layman so the yeah tell us a little bit about this ritual <laughs>
0: <laughs> well i am um... Uh, exquisitely pleased to be here with Scout Raina Wiley, one of my all time favorite Void Maidens. And uh, we're going to play a game of I Spy with the hypnagogic G spot in the center of the brain where we feel that we think from and where we phenomenologically exercise our executive capacities. So it's Osna Chakra Day all day here on the Metamodern yeah. Magic Podcast, dirigible. Floating high above conventional categories, drifting southward in the winds of neurophilosophically justified occultism. Hi.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a whole lot of words. Thank you. Uh, you're always you're always so much better at the intros than me. I always like to speed through the intro. I'm like, hi, this is a podcast. This is a person. Hey, person, what do you want to talk about? Uh, kind of thing. But yeah. Weird because
0: I, I hate introductions. <laughs> like I, I skip the openings of movies. I don't like it yeah. when anyone introduces me. I'm just like, just get to the talking uh-huh. part. <laughs> uh
1: huh. Yeah. What's the significance of um, of mastering something that you don't have a taste for?
0: That's a great question, and I think, um, I think there's a there's a way of learning to love a certain kind of grit feeling you know like there's a growth mindset thing where like the stuff that's best for you is trying to do things you're not good at yet or there's a kind of you know the the Wim Hof thing like how do you how do you get good at having cold showers (laughs) you have to tell your brain that the feeling that initially seems awful is actually good so there's this like a grit feeling where you're like I'm gonna tell myself and maybe slowly get better at clawing my way through these unpleasant things Uh, And maybe I'll gain a little bit of artfulness in that process, which might look like mastery to someone else down the line, but it's just, uh, you know, if you're in the swamp, (laughs) you just claw your way forward bit by bit, and eventually you're out of the swamp, or a gator gets you, one of the two.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned mastery as we're talking about the Ajna um because it sort of loosely relates to this talked a little bit about the cauldrons of posy which is a really interesting and fascinating um sort of three-part system energy system um in sort of really old irish druidic tradition um and the cauldron that sits where the ajna just so happens to also occupy space um it's it's so this cauldron when you're born it's it's inverted it's empty uh, because the idea is that you uh, this is a particular type of wisdom that you have to cultivate through uh, through experience um, and yeah it's 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 apparently quite rare that one has it upright um, which is interesting um you only see it upright in like older people uh, according to some of the texts but a, there's not a lot written about it that or either there's not a lot written about it or um archaeologists are just doing a, a really bad job of finding scriptures <laughs> and i heard this cauldron um is attributed to this story of the birth of Taliesin so there's this there's this witch called Caradue, and she has a very ugly son, and she's she's like oh feels really bad for him, like no magic can make her son beautiful. She's tried everything, and and so she kind of defaults to okay, well I'll just make him really wise and skillful instead. Um, and she makes this potion, and it takes ages to make the potion. And then when the potion's finally re- finally ready, only three drops of it will actually be effective, and the rest will be poison. And Guian Bach just so happens to be her servant and he's, you know, he either pushes the sun out of the way and gets the three drops for himself or in some versions of the story he accidentally falls and he catches them on himself so it's interesting that wisdom is either acquired through trickery or folly and this is true of a lot of different um, different sort of tales it, it, that uh, another one that comes to mind is finn nicole and the salmon of knowledge where he also kind of tricks someone and he eats the salmon of knowledge um when he he claimed he was going to to take it and bring it to his master but he ends up taking it for himself um and i think that that's interesting because ajna is associated with both clarity and focus it's also associated with delusion <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah there's so many things there like um, there's the there's the delusive aspect of seeing things which people don't normally see which can be imaginally augmented insights or can be diluting uh, hallucinations there's this i think the etymology involves perception and command are sort of alternately thought of as the etymological root of the word ajna and -hmm. that's interesting because there's the witnessing function the looking capacity and then there's the intending function Right, these executive capacities that we uh, somewhat accurately but somewhat casually ascribe to the prefrontal cortex but then there's this aspect you were bringing up of like uh, trickery and cunning and you know Gurdjieff talked about the way of the sly man and I think about Odin with his one eye and the sort of you know, a scheme to get wisdom. Wisdom's often mm-hmm. a scheme, and it's yeah. attractive to the person who is able to perceive things that other people don't normally perceive, right? Because that's um, it can be very practical. Like, imagine you're sitting around the poker table. The guy who can see the hidden tell in the other player is likely to win that, right? So he's got a little bit of Ajna chakra advantage, but the natural way that human beings would use that is to see things that they can try out in manipulation in tactical cunning in building structures right only a very small percentage of the ajna chakra development has to do with the the meditator trying to see into additional realms or perceive the highest or unify all their attention most of mm-hmm. its casual deployment is uh, executive functions and mm-hmm. i think they're Anybody who's been in school knows that the smartest kids also cheat the most. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because you see how it would work. You can pull it off and you you want to get to that success mm-hmm. point. Whereas the kids that don't have that clarity, they don't know how they would go about gaming the system.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, there's so much there. Um, the first thing that came up was uh, in Harry Potter lore, you have the two Hogwarts houses that are associated with intellect. So you have the Slytherin house, which is about cunning. It's about sort of, um, it's like that, um, I think of like Spiral Dynamics Red, but I also think of Orange, Um, this sort of like coming out on top and like also having loyalty to the tribe and uh, sort of, slitting the throat of anyone who gets in your way, right? So it's very competitive, um, very cutthroat. And then there's Ravenclaw, which is more about like the actual deep love of wisdom, right? And and almost kind of like getting lost in the knowledge for its own sake, right? So there's like an upside and a downside to both of these approaches to um, how we're acquiring wisdom and how we're using our ability to perceive Um I tend to fall, I'm, so I, I do, I, I took the test because, because dork, um, I am a Ravenclaw <laughs> and I can see the, like, the, the, like, uh, for the people who saw the movies and are and didn't read the books as much, like myself, um, the poster child for Ravenclaw is, like, Luna Lovegood, who is, um, this girl who doesn't wear shoes and can see, uh, creatures that no one else can see, right, and uh, people think that she's crazy, um, and, uh, You know, and then you also have Harry who ends up a Gryffindor, right? Because he has the, uh, he, he has like the courage to determine his own fate, as opposed to like he would have ended up Slytherin because he is kind of like a mastermind manipulative person. But the fact that he wrestles with that, and that's primary, a primary aspect of his character is what landed him in Gryffindor in the first place was like his decision to, um, take that sort of masterfulness and use it in a way that was um, sort of like pushing the boundaries of uh, I think what people expected of him and also what he expected of himself. Um, I also wanna talk a little bit about, well, I wanna ask you a question actually. Um, okay. The actual pineal land, which is associated with, um, with the Ajna chakra, um, there's a lot of really funny stuff floating around about the function of it. it. There's a lot of mystery surrounding the function of it. We know that it releases melatonin, which you know plays a huge role in uh, the like dream and like the wake-sleep cycle, the circadian thing. Um, it, it secretes a ton of really important hormones. Um, People talk about like fluoride and calcification and, and, and this. then and then we bridge into conspiracy territory, which I personally love conspiracy territory. There's something about the uh, mythification, I just made that word up, <laughs> of reality that's really appealing. And there's something about that narrative of there's good and there's an evil and the evil is clearly defined and that means that we get to fight it. Um, yeah, so there's, there's clarity again as a general theme. I know
0: i just threw a lot of stuff at you so yeah well I um it. <laughs> i gotta say luna luna lovegood's definitely hotter than hermione uh, I, think, I
1: agree <laughs>
0: <laughs> i think harry potter is an interesting character because he has a forehead sigil and because it's connecting him to the dark entity and we were mm. talking about the cunning is right it's not necessarily a a source of infinite light
1: (laughs) there's also a lot of
0: sociopathy here yeah um i have a thing to say about sociopathy in this but i'll come back to it the pineal glands nobody knows right obviously half-educated people throughout history have liked to guess the connections between science and medical anatomy and subtle energies and that's extremely dubious terrain (laughs) Mm -hmm. however um there are things about the pineal gland that look like they are photoreceptors. It looks like it has a similar genetic structure to our eyeballs, Mm. right? And then that's not not a strange thing because our genetic program seems to know whole sets of things, right? It doesn't have to just invent eyeballs. It knows how to make an eyeball and it can throw Mm. one on a frog, throw one on a fish, put one on your tail or whatever. So the (laughs) fact that it put one in the middle of the brain, okay, that's functionally plausible in an evo-devil evolutionary toolkit um is it an accident or is there some evolutionary function assuming that this gland in the middle of the head functions like an eye the peculiar thing about that is it's not getting photons in there so it's either doing something else that's eye like or maybe uh, people have argued that photons are actually a secondary form of energetic phenomenon coasting on some kind of etheric underlying wave like where do photons get their energy from Mm -hmm. Right. So it might be that you have an additional eye like receptor for the underlying energy that hasn't yet become light, but does the things that become light. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of the things that excites me, but we don't really know. uh, And we're not really sure when we say Ajna, there's a kind of ambiguity about whether we mean something like really close to the forehead or deep Mm -hmm. into the center of the brain, because you can close your eyes. And you know, for me, under certain meditation conditions, I see vivid hypnagogic imagery. It's usually mm-hmm. a god or a goddess or a throne or sometimes an eyeball staring back at me very vividly, and it looks like it's Six. on the back of the eyelids. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit different than the sensation of the center of the brain where it feels like consciousness emerges. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe there's some loop-like circuit between the two of them, but it's really, I think, ambiguous whether... Um, the pineal gland is the location of the ajra, or not, or whether it's some circuit involving these systems or whether it's actually some subtler thing located out here. Um, yeah, there's a lot of dubiousness there. I, I've heard a lot of people say that it's eye-like and that it's a neurophotoreceptor in its basic structure. But yeah, myself, I, I take that with I, a grain of yeah. salt and I'm, I'm yet to hear a strong evolutionary argument about why we would have an eye in the middle of our brain. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I too have heard that. Um, I've read, you know, various things, sort of, <laughs> none of which I really trust um, for various reasons. Um, but uh, I have read, you know, that it's like a, they, some folks refer to it as an atrophied photoreceptor. So it's not like a photoreceptor in the same way that I is, but um, it, can like i might be wrong but um it's like light your eyes are doing the eye thing right and then the third eye or the pineal gland is, is connected to them somehow and when you release melatonin it's based on like the changes in light in your environment but I don't know if that's like, it's it's very indirect. So it's a little confusing, right? That's I think that's sort of where the dubiousness is coming from is like, why why is it structured the way it's structured? It's, it's kind of a mystery. You know
0: what just point. popped up for me when you, yeah. s- you said that it was, I was thinking of cows having multiple stomachs to break things down. So we could have like yeah. level one eyes and then we have like a second eye to process yeah. the, the photons that got through.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like a, like a, like a, like boss battle, right. I, and then like a final boss, eye. you know, where it's, yeah. <laughs> the photons that survived the first boss make it to the final boss, but nobody makes it out alive because um, you know,
0: yeah, and what would you see then if, if you only had the survivor visual inputs, then what image would you make out of those? <laughs> mm, that's a good right. and question. It would be it would be more simplified, but in that it would be more mythic because it was more simplified.
1: Right. right. Yeah. Well, internally gener- generated images are really basic in a lot of ways. Um, we often see a lot of the same things. I think, like, you know, I've never done DMT, but um, i have done various psychoactive drugs and i often see what couldn't be described as anything other than the, like the hindu gods right just the way that they're structured and um i don't whether or not that's an influence from um just reading about them before i had ever done any psychoactive drugs or um you know but even before i had read about anything like mandalas like that was what would come up because it's like a basic structure um that you know either is underlying the physical reality or our brains project those basic shapes because that's like a part of human nature is to see shapes like i'm deaf i'm synesthetic so i often do see like mandalas and 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 webs and and um something that i see often is like uh when you when you google systems and you see the little like network or you google like neural network like I see yeah. that all the time when I'm talking um as I'm connecting different things that I'm thinking about to each other uh I, I guess my own personal mythology of my Ajna would be that it's like a, a, a projector that's it's and then like the,
0: yeah.
1: the the physical reality is like the screen you know and I'm project. I'm, watch- I'm like come over and watch Brat Pack movies with me <laughs>
0: Uh, well i would pick up on the hindu gods thing and the synesthesia thing In the hindu gods part i uh, in in meditations where i pursue them to the point where i have a distributed equivalent sensation of myself in all directions which sometimes is opening all of the centers or sometimes is blending them or sometimes is just you know, holding in a place of balance and not giving any one of them any more attention than the other. If that succeeds after a while, I get a generalized whole sense of the self. And when I look at this spot, uh, I see a set of shifting images that accompany that sensation. And so I think the things I'm seeing are indicator lights for that sensation experience. And what they do is they rotate through like a kaleidoscope but only of a certain set of things where there's apex figures gods and goddesses who are very often quite hindu in structure uh mm-hmm. sometimes there's just a throne for the apex being and sometimes there's a kind of very geometric cellular thing going on mm-hmm. that is somehow the same thing so there's this underlying structure that can look cellular can look geometric can look like religious iconography and it kind of mutates and rotates through but they all have Mm -hmm. they're all versions of the same entity and they seem to be the uh projective imaginal indicator light for whole being experience Mm -hmm. synesthesia is interesting because again here's another ambiguity about the ashram Is it a general sensory perceptive organ or is it a specifically visual optical system? Mm -hmm. Right, and this is important in um, integral dynamics because Ken Wilber is so optically oriented in his metaphors. It's vision logic and it's the eye of spirit and it's perspectives and those sorts of things. It's very right. He's describing these vision logic structures. Here's some things I saw with my Ajna open uh, from a post postmodern perspective. Great. But is that all that's there? Because um, sometimes you hear people joke about the third nostril. Nietzsche talked about listening with the third ear if you want to understand how he's writing his books. So is it a generalized synesthetic sensory experience amplified mm-hmm. to an imaginal level? Or is there something particularly visual about
1: it? It's really difficult to research something like synesthesia because like, how else do you know someone has it other than they say they have it? um and you know it needs to be consistent in some ways and like mine's actually kind of inconsistent most stuff that you read about synesthesia is like oh this person like can taste this number or something really specific like that or like the number seven is always read to that person um but it's like I don't see that like that's not how it works for me um so yeah it's it's, it's an interesting phenomenon but I remember I was speaking with a friend And she said the words ghost pipe, and I'd never see, I'd seen ghost pipe, but I didn't know what it was. Uh, She said the word ghost pipe, and I saw a very particular filmy white, right, like the color of of the actual uh, fungus. And I saw dark indigo blue, and I was like, what color is ghost pipe? And she's like, oh, it's like a translucent white, but when you, when you, um, make an infusion of it, it turns this dark indigo go blue. And I was like, that's fucking wild. And I looked at ghost pipe, right? I Googled it and I was like, oh, I've seen those. They're like little hook shaped guys, right? That's definitely a full spectrum somatic experience. It's not just visual. Um, I do think that's a really, really, really interesting inquiry because I'm curious if other people experience that and then experience it as being connected to their Ajna.
0: Uh, thing just popped into my mind which was a uh, yeah i saw an interview with alec baldwin on inside the actor's studio years ago and uh if if anybody remembers movies from the 90s alec baldwin always played a sociopathic killer <laughs> before he got into comedy and in the interview they asked him how you play sociopathic killers and he said that his acting teacher had told him you put all your attention on a spot at the exact center of your head and then any lines you deliver seem like you're just a pure gazing sociopathic monster (laughs) you get that Hannibal Lecter gaze right because there's some part of you is withdrawn from the human experience Mm. and is just a precise looker Mm. Uh, and that's intriguing because it comes back to that thing we were saying at the beginning about like cunning isn't necessarily a negative quality Mm -hmm. but the Ajna can be Um, complex. It can be light and dark. It can be something Mm -hmm. that we associate with predation as much as we associate with religious inspiration. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Well, what do you think the link is between predation and survival for human beings?
0: Human beings are extremely complex. We have a lot more things to take into account for our survival than most of the other creatures. And so we need to uh, exert executive coordination of this massive complexity in order to survive and so to be able to do i think the ajna is simultaneously a perceptive and an intentional system right it's uh, it's attention on purpose uh, those prefrontal organ and systems so in order for a human being to survive in a multi-dimensional way and in a complex situation with evolving tools and evolving societies and complicated other people Um, we need to be able to uh, reunify our functions. We need to be able to do like an overdrive function and say, all right, I know all of these parts want to go in a bunch of different directions, but I'm going to need them all to get in line right now. And that's a Mm -hmm. special Ajna function, right? And I think it's a function that we associated with um, well-trained royalty in the past, at least symbolically. If you see the Egyptians, you know, like there's the people, then there's the people up in the pyramid and they have like a risen serpent on their forehead. Yeah, (laughs) They're near the eye of the pyramid. They can see for a thousand years and tell us all what to do.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Thank you for bringing that up because the first thing that came to mind when we um, first started talking about this was uh, one of my personal fascinations right now is dragon lore. I've been studying that um and the serpent you know the 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 cosmic serpent um the the sort of serpent mother at the bottom of the ocean right uh tiamat or leviathan depending on who you who you ask um uh i've been reading about it that i which is like the red dragon of the welsh people and how like the red dragon fought off the white dragon of the saxons and like that's why the welsh have the have a red dragon on their on their flag is because because of like the sort of self-preservation sort of aspect right of the dragon for for them specifically um haven't read as much as i would like to about chinese dragons but the lore with dragons uh for chinese people is is just like so extensive like they're so complex they really there's a lot of reverence i think for that symbol and and the serpent the serpent beyond just like the dragon right because the the dragon is 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 got fucking wings right like that's insane but then even just the normal serpent there's already there's so much there especially for i guess like in america we're very christianized um we're very influenced by puritanism we're very influenced by a fear of the serpent you know slaying the dragon like that's that's the legacy we have mythologically and and i'm very curious about the serpent slytherins you know obviously their their symbol is the serpent so very curious about the overlap between uh the the reptilian right sort of uh yeah uh, archetype and and the ajna
0: the uh yeah obviously when we gaze into the eyes of serpents we we see a kind of unmoving unwavering (laughs) reminds us of the thing we want to be able to do Uh, i think the difference is that they are um, expressions uh, i'm saying this about regular uh, reptiles not necessarily about dragons regular reptiles are expressions of an ancient program Whereas, what we're trying to do with the Ajna is to be able to intentionally instantiate that same capacity, not just to do it like we don't just want to be able to gaze at a mouse that's coming near our mouth. We want to be able to decide on purpose where to aim this capacity, right? Like, lots of people, when I went to school, there were these two guys who always did terrible on these spelling tests, and they were. I mean, totally progressive spelling test. You got to pick your partner and choose your words. And then you both reported your results at the end of the week, right? So you're like, you could easily get 100% on this. (laughs) These two guys kept getting like two out of 10. I'm like, what is the matter with you? You have no memory? But then I heard them on the playground and they were just rattling out statistics about hockey players. And I thought, Oh, you guys have amazing memories. You just Mm -hmm. can't aim it on purpose. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. what you're lacking. You can't, you can't steer the gun. (laughs) So the the reptile can steer the gun in the ways that you automatically steer the gun, but we would like to be able to steer it on purpose. Now Mm -hmm. the thing about the serpent that first jumped out at me though, uh, this goes to dragons a little bit in their Transhuman perceptual gaze, but also the um, the sense that the serpent is a hypnotizer. I like. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw Disney, the old Disney's Robin Hood with the snake and he's yeah. his yeah eyes, right? Like, yeah, there's something yeah. about the hypnotic trance effect and there's something interesting about trance as well one of the basic Mm -hmm. hypnotherapeutic inductions is to ask you to put all of your attention on the spot where you think consciousness is arising in the back of your mind Mm -hmm. and that does tend to shift our consciousness into some kind of trance mode so Mm -hmm. the gaze of the serpent is so powerful that it um places you in a trance state which could be beneficial or might not be beneficial but there's a sense where you behold a dragon you might lose your capacities you might forget you came to slay a dragon just by gazing into its eyes (laughs) so then it's exerting its will through its focus
1: boy i sure am jealous of dragons in that case (laughs) um yeah i'm really curious about like dopamine the dopamine system is coming to mind and I am really curious if the pineal gland plays a role in, in, in that. I mean, I think it does. I'm, I can't remember. <laughs> All right. Um, but yeah, just curious about that. And um, yeah, the hypnotist kind of thing. It reminds me of uh, something that um, we did it in Butoh practice without my teacher. Uh, Jacqueline Shannon showed us yeah. so we we would do a rolling meditation for an hour at the start of every class and it was the worst part because I would I would fall asleep sometimes um because with a with rolling meditation you're supposed to like take the entire hour to move from your back to your front and you're only allowed to move like one muscle at a time right which is functionally impossible but welcome to Bhutto. <laughs> um, and and she would encourage us to, um, to sort of like do this rolling back of the eyes, looking through the, the third eye, right? To uh, help us find a thread of movement, right? Not to create a thread of movement, but to find an already existing thread of movement and to follow it. Um, so it's interesting the implication that what you're seeing um, with, the, with the Ajna is already there. You just need to do some sort of specific practice to refine your capacity to see it. Um, unlike the reptile, which is pre-programmed to see the mouse so that it can kill it. Right. Like a computer, you know, it's got like an algorithm. We have a uh, immense amount of freedom and, you know, speaking of, uh, sociopathy, um, I don't know a ton about it, but yeah. So in my experience with hypno hypnotherapy, it's like not really hypnotherapy. It's like NLP, which is similar. Um, I was taught this thing called timeline therapy or timeline clearing, right? I wasn't technically taught real timeline therapy because that's patented by some guy. But uh what you do is you is you is you kind of like go within and you evoke your timeline, right? And um the trainer would what he would say is you know, you know your time, you remember your timeline, right? So he would suggest to you that you already had one, right. He wouldn't ask you to make one. There's no effort on your part. Um, and that the phrasing in hypnosis is, is incredibly powerful because it sort of, it empowers you in such a way that it makes you lazy. It's like, oh yeah, everything's already handled. I can shut off my conscious brain. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, and then the timeline, what's, what's really interesting about the, that is, uh, when I was, whenever I was getting my timeline, um, evoked or whatever um it was never in order it was never like the way you want someone's timeline to be when you're doing the therapy the therapeutic part is like present is is with them right and either the future is on one side and the past is on another side or the future is in the front and the past is in the back and the future typically gets uh higher and brighter in people who are not depressed and the past gets lower and dimmer in people who are not depressed um, so every time we elicited my timeline, the present was on my left shoulder. Um, and sometimes the future would be behind me. Sometimes the fu- like the future would be like on top of my head. Sometimes the future would be inside my chest. And so uh, we were trying to figure out like why that was a thing. And I kept asking him like, why is this a thing? And he's like, yeah, it's fine that it's a thing. And I'm like, yeah, but why is it a thing? And I don't think he knew. Um, I, uh, had this article that I'm supposed to be finishing reading that I didn't finish reading that talked about um, some theory about time that's relatively new, how past, present, and future exist simultaneously. Um, and uh, when, I, when I initially saw the headline, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, like uh, maybe there's something to this uh, perceiving oneself outside of time. phenomenon that is actually um, just as real as perceiving time as linear, right? Because perceiving time as linear is good for certain things, but maybe it's not good for all things. I don't know. Have you ever had any experiences of what I'm referring to as time tripping here?
0: Uh, Yeah, I'm trying to be... (laughs) I I want (laughs) to make sure we don't sway too far into time because that's an entire discussion. (laughs) But there's something that where is it connected to the ajra is what I'm asking myself. Mm. Uh, There's some interesting things there, right? There's the perception of future things that haven't happened. uh, And some of those things are um, seemingly accurate information. And some of those are the perception of possibilities in the future. There's the perception of past realities. Or some people go, you know, they, they see the dead people of a certain place when they visit a holy site or something like that.
1: Oh, There's yeah.
0: The of the, well, I was mentioning <laughs> the Egyptians, right? You're like, what does it take for a pharaoh to say to everybody, listen, we're going to put up a building for a thousand years and we're all going to work on it. And all your kids and your grandkids are going right? to You're like, that's a big pro. That guy thinks the future is really visceral. <laughs> uh-huh. He sees with definiteness yeah. over a long span. So there's a lot of that. There's also the um, moments where you perceive time as laid out like a topology, where it seems Mm -hmm. like a number of our good physicists have done that. Einstein's notion of block time, you're trying to grapple with 4 dimensional or five-dimensional structures. Uh, I've seen things that look to me like time was laid out like a topological map, and that there, there were points here and the Cause and effect chains were actually coming in from all the angles, and each of the peaks had to happen, but all the things in the valleys could go all kinds of different ways. Uh, I saw this, I saw it, (laughs) uh, quite a number of times, but I also don't believe it, which is interesting. It means these are different there we go. (laughs) (laughs) I have different theories about time which tell me that's not quite how it was, but that's definitely how it looked.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oof, yeah yeah I've seen things that I probably that I don't know what what was going on um another another sort of NLP exercise that I really like is coming to mind um And it's, you know, it's, it's based in evolutionary NLP, which takes, you know, NLP and integral theory and kind of mash them together. Um, And it's uh, called the alignment of neurological levels, which I think is a terrible name for it because it implies neuroscience is involved and it's, it's mostly just like holons. So I've renamed it, you know, holarchic adjustment, which is also a terrible name, but more accurate. Um, And what you'll do is... (laughs) <laughs> thank you it's it's the worst. I'm very proud of myself <laughs> um, so there are these different layers and they start with like a basic physical layer and they move on and uh to behaviors and and identity and then they finally culminate at spirit right And so you actually walk through them while you're in a trance and you just feel into them and you see how they're all kind of related to each other and then you move back and typically by uh whenever I do this exercise, by the time I get to spirit, I am like in a trance having a vision seeing myself somewhere that doesn't exist yet but feels really 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 real you know and typically in experiences like that um there's like a felt sense of your rational mind is 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 still there it's just not leading the show and i think it kind of pings you right if it senses that something is off because it won't let you fully embody the uh what's present for you in the vision state right something will feel really gross about that vision something something will feel off right you can go you can go back into waking consciousness and process it later and figure out if it's a red flag that's just like self-sabotage it doesn't want you to have the thing or if it's uh there's a genuine logistical issue that you need to sort out before you can get the thing, or if the thing is just like a wet dream that's not possible, right? The best way to get lost in ajna um, is to bypass that ping of the rational mind and be like, you're just trying to ruin a good time for me, kind of thing. You know, but the warning is worth heeding even if it turns out to be a false alarm, I think.
0: It seems like there's a balance point involved in all of this. Like what makes you know, if we take left, right brain in the kind of Ian McGillchrist sense of uh, one of them's going to use things it already knows about and the other one's open to discovering more generalized patterns that it does not yet know about, mm-hmm. right? So you're again, to reference the hypnotic induction thing, when you ask someone to on purpose pay attention to something whose significance they don't know, <laughs> you're asking mm-hmm. them to use both those sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you are perceiving and perceiving and perceiving, and then you see a new structure, a new pattern, even if it's mm-hmm. in a very practical or even manipulative form that involves both of those sides, because you're trying to do something on purpose and you're paying attention, but you also were open to a pattern you didn't notice before, mm-hmm. right? Lucid dreaming is a little bit like that. Cause you've got to get the calibration just right to have enough alpha and beta while you're in Delta. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I and have not successfully
1: lucid dreamed.
0: Dreamed. So you're talking about that too, because you you have to um, you have to undo a lot of the hyperactive functioning of the so-called left brain systems, mm-hmm. but not reduce it to zero. It's got to be mm-hmm. in collaboration. So you got to find that spot that's just right. And it seems like everything the Ajna does is about bringing these two together, which is interesting mm-hmm. because when we imagine that spot in the center of the brain, we're also kind of imagining the corpus callosum and whatever <laughs> the interface system is between our two halves. And that mm-hmm. makes me think of the gospel and Jesus saying, you know, make if when thine eye becomes singular, the whole body will be full of light. Mm-hmm. You're going to take your maybe two intelligence systems and make them operate as a single thing. And then what you're going to do is have a usable pattern But it's a pattern you couldn't see before. Those things come right together in balance. And that's the same, I think, whether you see somebody's poker tell or you realize the house you could build on an empty lot or you see something um, in the mind's eye or in some subtle state. I think they all involve a careful balancing between the openness to new patterns and the ongoing ability to um, usefully and with executive competence, zero in on something and connect with it. But either of those too prominent would derail that process.
1: Yeah. 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 That seems to be a theme, I think, across the sort of explorations of these different energy centers is like, well, what happens when we get too focused on any given thing? I recently was diagnosed with ADHD. There's a lot of like misconception about how attention works when you when you have that condition and um hyperfocus is is quite possibly one of the harder things to regulate with ADHD because it's like you know you should be eating sleeping you have to go to the bathroom you haven't had water in 5 hours but you can't stop doing the thing <laughs> like you just get sucked into the thing because you love it so much i can play guitar for 5 hours straight and then I'm like, why do I feel so cranky? Oh, I haven't eaten, like that kind of thing, right? Um, I forgot why we're talking about this. Um, yeah, we're talking about balancing, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so with like something like ADHD, you're kind of looking at all the things at once, and sometimes that can actually be a talent. Um, you know, if you can if you can bridge hyper focus and Mister Distracted by a squirrel, if you can bridge those two parts of you together, you can you can be a really effective multitasker. You can like hold all of the sensation and the aliveness of the environment in your experience and you can really flow with it. So I've only gone rock climbing like once or twice, but doing that is like, there's so much going on. You need to actually focus on the whole picture in order to be successful. Like that is when you can truly shine if you are someone who has like that attention regulation problem. So there's, there's a gift in it that I think, you know, everyone can cultivate that. How am I, how can I be present um, in the moment um, and let my focus kind of like bounce around a little bit, but, but, but while I still have the reins, you know, that's, that's something that I think is, that's, what's coming up for me around this. Um, And I also had a question for you, but I forgot what it was just. Reminded myself to drink water. So it's good. Good.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting with uh, focus. Like how do you get to that sweet spot that doesn't go into monomania or complete random distraction? And it mm-hmm. requires all these material supports, right? You gotta have the glucose, you gotta have the water, you gotta have the sleep, you gotta have all these things.
1: Yeah.
0: But mm-hmm. then there's this other element of intentional exercise, right? Mm-hmm. And uh You know, all of the yogic traditions are full of these things. And even the magical traditions of like, hey, why don't you sit and stare at a candle flame on purpose for three hours? You're like, that's odd. Most people are never going to do that. And of course, most people are almost (laughs) never going to pay attention to anything on purpose. They're going to pay attention to whatever they want to pay attention to in a moment, Mm -hmm. right? In order to practice (laughs) intentional attention, it's got to be kind of arbitrary because it's not something you would naturally want to do like, well, I'm going to watch this movie, but instead of just watching the movie, I'm going to pay attention to the top left corner of the screen the whole time. You're like, mm-hmm. that's weird. Uh, I'm deliberately creating a perturbation of my attentional patterns. Mm-hmm. I'm activating a system that's not being prompted by any of my normal drives. Uh, And I'm exhibiting some kind of metacognitive operation where I'm going to override normal and I'm also going to monitor it and see how it goes. And that metacognitive frame, I think, is very connected to Ajna and vision logic and things Mm -hmm. like that. And when we come back to this question of balance, am I too scattered or am I too locked in? That's a question Mm -hmm. I can only ask myself from a metacognitive frame. And if right. I'm using that if frame, right. then I can always ask myself that question right do I need to deploy my intentionality in order to give myself a more steady focus right now on purpose or do I need to be open to more shifting possibilities right now on purpose?
1: yeah there there is there is a a certain cognitive ability or or, or um yeah, you said metacognitive or metacognition or something. And I think that's a really good way of putting it is like, um, if I don't know that I can be in charge of my attention, or if I don't know, um, right, if I don't even know that my attention is just kind of bouncing all over the, oh, that's so distracting. Speaking of, I'm just going to wait, wait for that to shut up. And then, oh, that was really annoying. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> um I'll just cut that out or or not I honestly think that the like part like me saying I'm going to cut it out and then not doing that is actually kind of funny
0: That's um what yeah, could yeah. be better for an Ajna episode than distractions <laughs>
1: right <laughs> right me unsuccessfully being like not sure yeah whatever um I thought of like Drishti right the whole concept of Drishti in yoga um which is like the playing with the gaze and seeing how the gaze like helps you to maintain balance or um, my dad is a dance teacher right and I struggle with spins um, and he he taught me you know it's it's about two things it's really quite simple right lower center of gravity the easier it is to play with your own weight you know and using your gaze so you don't even have to think about what your body is doing if you're guiding yourself with your gaze and and of course he was a yoga teacher so he probably got it from there but um yeah the idea of drishti being like a the thing that leads you is I think really powerful because um I, I think we kind of tend to we tend to kind of think of the body as like frag like a, like a just a bunch of different parts together on a thing right um as opposed to like everything connected to everything else and you can choose any point of reference to lead from and you can kind of play with how that changes things and I think that's really cool when playing with focus when playing with gaze um even when you know playing with just like one part like the head and seeing how how it moves the rest of the body that's really fascinating um also you, you mentioned something from christian scripture that i thought was really fascinating when you see with with the uh, something you make eye. your
0: eyes singular your whole body yeah. Is light
1: yeah the ajna is associated with light and a lot of like new age people associate um, ajna and um the crown which i forget the sanskrit name for um with the light body right so there's this concept Uh, in new age i don't know where they got it from i just i i know it from new age uh spirituality which is like that there's a a a body constructed of light um and that's really fascinating to me because there's also the concept of a pain body right and the idea is that the pain body's bad and the light body's good and you want to you want to transition to the light body right or something like that which is you know I don't super resonate with that because I don't resonate with the concept of leaving my body before it's time for me to do that uh I'd rather hang out here for as long as I can it's a nice place the water's fine in my opinion um so (laughs) um but but uh yeah this idea that there are these different layers of the body right and and it kind of resonates in the sense that there are different systems in the body. And you know, you have this muscular skeletal system, you have the lymphatic system, you have the blood circulatory system, whatever. Um, And then the subtle body is also broken into that. Like you have your earth body, you have your space body, you have your light body. Um, And I like to think of that as like all of the sort of things that are connected with Ajna as a physical center being seen as like their own kind of system and 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 I I get curious about okay so if we think of the concept of a light body right I might be getting like way too abstract here so stop me if you like really what's going on um (laughs) the the concept of there being a light body like I'm wondering if we can imaginally communicate with Ajna um and the pineal gland and and the the hormones that it excretes and 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 all the different parts that uh, of the body that it's connected to through conceptualizing of uh a specific type of body made of light like i'm curious if maybe one day we'll 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 figure that puzzle out
0: <laughs> light is a very rich concept it has a number of different metaphorical and physical aspects to it right it's uh pure electromagnetic radiation which is also connected to we know some interesting things about biophotons now mm. right so there, there is a light emitting function in bodies there is a sense mm. in which all matter is electromagnetically structured and so is made of light uh was any of that what they were talking about when the metaphor of light was introduced in esoteric psychology over human history maybe maybe not yeah um <laughs> <laughs> there's certainly um right Th- there's the notion of how do we explain to ourselves the body that we seem to have in a dream world or a visionary state mm-hmm. uh it's like a body it's i can see it but it doesn't have any it doesn't have the weight yeah <laughs> so it's physically yeah. light but also it's a bit like a stained glass window or a hologram there's that kind of a light body and then there's metaphorical ways of explaining sensations of a permeating light energy Mm -hmm. so i was um, the other day i was out shoveling the snow (laughs) and there were i put a shovel in and it melted in, in the peat and it tipped over and i thought oh that's an interesting gives me a strange feeling i'm just looking at a physical object i'm getting a strange sensation what would gurdjieff tell me to do he would tell me to on purpose connect this system with a perception from another system. So I'm like, okay, what, what else? What do I have any feelings about this? And I would just come up with random shit. Like I'm doing a Genlin focusing exercise and be like Toblerone. No, that's clearly not it. So I'm running through things until I'm like, you know what? It's jaunty. I'm feeling jaunty. This, this <laughs> shovel is tipped at a jaunty angle and I'm used to attributing it to hats, but I guess it could be attributed to anything. And in that moment, I'm doing a a narrow left brain perception, but I'm open to a right brain pattern. I'm seeing a new range of possibilities because I'm suddenly aware the world contains many more potentially jaunty things than I'd realized. And in that moment and the subsequent moments, it seems like my whole system is coordinated through the amplified attention, through the more salient perception, right? It's like I eat it. And then all of a sudden, wow, the whole of me is all together. It's all organized now. And the thing that goes along with that collective organization thing is a sense that I'm permeated by some other stuff, right? And if you had to describe what that stuff was, well, it's somewhere between light and buzziness. (laughs) (laughs) We touched on some of the... uh, uh deities like ajna deities mm-hmm. like shiva and like odin like figures who yeah. sort of are depicted it as a singularity of an eye and then also yeah. for me uh carl jung saying that the flying saucer which is sometimes associated with the eye of odin is maybe like a key archetypal phenomenon for the emerging age so these sort of celestial figures of, of a singular eye or a disc or the eye of the triangle, we might want to dig into that a little bit.
1: Well, specifically with Odin, like what, what comes to mind um, is his relationship with his ravens, mm-hmm. um, which are uh, Hugin and Munin, which people typically translate as a thought and memory and his um his deep seated fear uh that you know as he let them free they would they would um he would lose them, something would happen to them, and he would never see them again um and that really hits home i think as uh, someone who uh i consider myself a baby psychonaut so yeah i've i've toyed with the with the idea of I could lose my mind, you know, like if I go too hard i could i could not come back and uh i think odin's comes from the very real the very real um possibility that as he's wandering the world collecting wisdom he could he could lose himself in that he could get swallowed by the delusions of ajna he could um become frozen by all of the possibilities um, and not know where to move forward he could you know he could be paralyzed by the by the fear of you know people some people are like uh i want to I keep my options open and then they just never do anything because they're actually afraid to uh step out of potential energy zone right so um there's so much risk right odin odin kind of shows us that there's so much risk involved in being a seer that that that's part of why like he's uh he's one of the gods that is the closest to me um and it's not just because i was born on a wednesday
0: well that's why you're so yeah material.
1: and that's why anansi also has a lot of like similar themes to yeah well i guess so right um but uh, anansi has like a his own sort of version of like the cauldron story right the pot of wisdom where um his father is the sky god and he gives him uh, the pot of wisdom right but Anansi is tasked with bringing the pot of wisdom to humanity because Inyame is so he takes pity on humanity because we're so dumb and he's just like getting sick of it so he's like here um here's the oh no I'm sorry it's a pot of all the stories right the pot of all the stories in the world and uh, Inyame is like wants to gift the pot of stories to to humans um and he gives anansi the task right so the trickster and mercurial right they're very very much aligned with each other um they're often the messenger and they often screw up the messages and uh anansi's kind of like hanging out right and he's got the pot of stories and um he's he's like far enough from nyame that he's like i don't keep these stories for myself bro like (laughs) i don't want you know there's this there's this element of cunning and selfishness right that we see with the um i would associate tricksters with the with the ajna too i think um because they're wisdom seekers and they're cunning uh and they teach lessons and you know that kind of thing um all these things are associated that are associated with what it means what it takes to actually acquire wisdom of course anansi's unsuccessful he gets out tricked by some random kid in a village and he gets so angry that he smashes the he doesn't want the pot for himself anymore he just he throws it down from a tree and he smashes it and the stories are scattered across the whole world um which is like a really funny story it's a really funny story because he's still considered the keeper of stories he's still considered the god of of, of stories yet he he gave up the stories you know uh he sacrificed his his title but he still gets to keep it and that's pretty confusing to me Yeah, i'm curious what you think about that
0: yeah that's interesting and uh, mm-hmm. i mean we're swaying dangerously into neil gaiman territory here with both <laughs> <Jordan> and- <laughs> but, uh There's something about the role of sacrifice in the function Mm -hmm. of Ajna and focus, right? So in Mm -hmm. giving up the stories or Mm -hmm. in Odin giving up his eye to gain knowledge of the world and knowledge of the future, it Mm -hmm. seems to have something in common with the sacrifice you make in performing an action of intentional attention, Mm -hmm. because what you're giving up is All the other things you could pay attention to and that you might Mm -hmm. want to pay attention to, even if you're like, I'm going to, you know, meditate on the tip of my nose. There's actually a huge amount of risk and struggle involved, which is why people don't normally do it, they have to say you know what, I have great reasons for paying attention to all the things I normally pay attention to. And I'm going to cut that off right now. I'm going to do an extremely unnatural thing in order to afford myself the possibility of being able to focus, see futures, make futures, organize myself into a singularity, which is in some ways a very unnatural thing to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah it definitely feels unnatural to me when I'm trying to do it. I have one of the worst, one of the hardest things to do when I was um, getting Reiki attuned was the Gasho meditation, which is just focus on gratitude and stare at the tips of your, of your hands. And I was just like, this is so painful. Like, why would anyone do this? Um, of course, like focusing on gratitude, that is a, is a pretty positive emotion. I think that, um, are probably some health benefits to that that I didn't wasn't getting um I try to actually do it these days but this like I got Reiki attuned like almost three years ago at this point and I just just didn't I basically for three years I just like dicked around and didn't do gastro meditation um because I was trying to avoid feeling like a failure right so there's this thing too with avoidance, right? Of like. Um, Odin is brave enough to let his, uh, let his crows go every day, right? And just trust that they'll come back. Um, That's the thing too, is like, if it's worth paying attention to, um, can you trust that it'll return to you, that there will be a time, right? Can you trust that um, focusing on your nose for five minutes um, while you're doing that, your kid is not going to jump out the window, right? Can you trust that? Um, Or are you going to, be like oh i gotta make sure that my kid doesn't jump out the window i don't have time to focus on my nose right so it's really like a question of can we shift our perception of reality in such a way that we can not feel like we're in danger of being chased by a lion for just five minutes a day um so that we can actually be more intentional about how we're what we're focusing on and and how we're using our <sighs> we're unique cognitive abilities as as humans
0: we seem to need a lot more of it right we it's easy to get carried away thinking that we're going to gain magical top-down capacities of will and self-determination right and there's a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of the complexity of reality that we might leave out if we were able to attain such a thing which we are not able to attain (laughs) Um, nonetheless most of us are um, like untrained animals, right? We're like somebody who has a dog who put no time into training them and just goes to the park and yells the dog's name. Well, it does whatever it wants. Yeah. <laughs> right, so there's, well, there's this sense in which we do need to domesticate ourselves to some degree, in which mm-hmm. we need to perform the ancient process of making ourselves be people and not just human animals. Mm-hmm. Not you know, mm-hmm. not that there's anything wrong with animals, but we have another set of functions that are amazing mm-hmm. as well. And that we only get that by interfering with our tendencies on purpose. And that's really intriguing. And uh, there's a tendency, I think, to associate the ajna too much with vision and seeing and witnessing and the kind of passive act of perceiving either everything that's going on for me or amazing other imaginal patterns that I might want to encounter. Um, That seems to me a little bit secondary to its function as an intentional capacity. Right. Because even if you go, I'm going to just be the witness, how much of that is the witnessing and how much of that is you decided on purpose to do it. Right. And that we can energize these systems by doing things to ourselves on purpose that give us these uh, executive capacities for self-reflection, self-determination, self-organization, which a lot of us need a lot more of. And if a, mm-hmm. if we had them in a more distributed, competent, robust way, we might rely less on external information sources and leaders and things like that. It may be that a lot of our social problems is that we look to system functions to fill in for the absence of uh, insight and executive control in ourselves.
1: Mm, I would agree with that. I do think that there's a lot in the culture of externalizing responsibility and, um, it's a, it's like a vicious cycle, right? Because we have institutions that are very bossy, <laughs> very bossy and, they, and, and very like, very much of the model of like humans will not grow unless they are forced, right? That's like a weird toxic narrative that we have. And we now realize like how much actual flexibility and control we have, I think, over our experience and how our experience informs our actual physical, like we can physiologically change ourselves to a certain degree that is a lot higher than I think we may have previously believed. And we're kind of in this space of developing out of the deterministic biological belief system and into a flexible biological system where there's a lot of complexity. I forget how this is related to the, to the, to the conversation. Well, what were we talking about?
0: <laughs> um, the use of intentionality and executive control. A yeah. relation that poses to uh, the social systems whereby we might offload that control, right? Yeah. We give power to people to make us do things in a way because we can't make ourselves do things.
1: Yeah, I literally just did that with you. So that, that that's kind of hilarious how that played out. But yeah, um, I love that we're having this conversation about like a thing that I can barely do.
0: Right, like it doesn't matter, even if you're a little bit better, that maybe I'm a little bit better at it, I'm still terrible. Like, uh, we're not our yeah. species is not great at this, <laughs> that's yeah. why it takes so much effort. <laughs> yeah,
1: nobody is good at the focus thing, especially now. Social media has just like made it really hard. I think, um, things like TikTok, I think, kind of do change our experience of uh, they they, they grab our attention by ruining our ability to pay attention to anything for more than five seconds it's really strange and I remember when I first downloaded TikTok I was like oh I immediately was like this is just going to make the thing that I'm already I'm too like vulnerable to this right and I do think that um everyone is right because we all have dopamine systems um but I recognized immediately I was like oh this is no this is this is going to fuck me up. Like, I can't be on this app. <laughs> I can't be on this app. I can't be on most apps. Like I had two apps that I use that I just, that that's it. I can't. Cause you'll just do, you'll just scroll forever and it, it destroys your brain. Um, you know, so that was a rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, well, yeah I, that's, I think yeah. that's
0: a really important one to bring up because we are in A situation where the normal human tendency to not be very good at focusing or doing things on purpose or seeing additional ranges of patterning is being compounded by a system that has automated showing you things that look like an additional range of patterning and eating up your attention and and corrupting your intentionality into its service so how do you train people to be able to survive in this emerging environment right your sense of the danger (laughs) posed to you by that that's really useful right if we don't if we don't if it doesn't hurt us then we're probably not going to escape from it but the other part is if you don't have any intentional practices then you're going to be sucked right in and the things that used to be the rare domain of the esoteric practitioner Uh, now become basic survival skills that unless you have a strong intentional attention practice, you're just going to be gobbled up by the attention-thieving algorithms. And how do you have an intentional attention practice? It's perverse because you have to do quasi-arbitrary activities. You know, I'm going to do this for this long, or I'm only going to look at this, or I'm going to feel my left toe tip for the next five minutes and nothing else. That's a very strange thing, right? It always has this arbitrary quality. And so Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem justified. And it isn't justified because what you're training is your ability to be the executive justifier of your own actions. And that's Mm -hmm. never going to be externally justified. Mm
1: -hmm. Sometimes
0: we can template that by having a teacher come in and give you a bunch of arbitrary tasks to do so you can model that process. But ultimately we have to be teaching each other that it's a good idea to do focus and do behavior on purpose for no reason except to do that so that we build up a capacity that we need in order just to survive in the face of the algorithms mm.
1: yeah or can we make that the justification like can we make autonomy yeah. and self-mastery yeah. its own justification system right to use henry sure. term i guess um
0: it's gonna steal so. your sovereignty unless you do this
1: <laughs> right yeah like is there an incentive for that? Because it's funny, I, um, I talk a lot, I use the word sovereignty a lot in like my short Facebook essays. And it's kind of a trigger word for people. Like I think some people hear it and they think, this is hyper-independence culture, this is toxic. And I'm like, uh, sovereignty is not possible without other people, right? Because you need something to either challenge your sense of autonomy so that you can reinforce your own sense of autonomy or validate your sense of autonomy by by honoring it right so it can't exist in a vacuum by itself it's 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 not separation It's you know um because that would be impossible um we're so informed and shaped and molded by our environments not even just other human beings but like the air in the room is contributing to my state of consciousness right now like i'm not you know, in that way, I'm not separate from it, even though we're distinct things. Um, can we create a, a, um, a sovereignty justification system that is clearly very collective in nature, um, but doesn't actually neglect ego in, in any sense? Or um, it doesn't neglect ego, but it's like, here's why you should sacrifice this sort of um, conception of ego as a separate thing right and here's why like ego is actually really important like a healthy ego is really important for a healthy um collective right um i think that 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 that's my ideal that's my like solar punk future thing
0: (laughs) we do uh we do need a culture of collaborative sovereignty And it looks something like teamwork. You know, if you watch if you watch a soccer team, whoever gets the ball, that person's the leader all of a sudden, right? Everybody else has to support that person. And so in an adequate team, you have to be able to both lead and follow. Right. And in a way, both of those are forms of sovereignty because you have to decide to lead or decide to support and receive. But a bunch of people doing that together can become an intelligent, competent unit where everybody honors each other for their sovereignty, but also is willing to participate with each other. I think that's the, that's the positive reading of what Nietzsche is talking about when he's talking about like master culture, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Where we're all experiencing each other's dignity. And because of that, we're all collaborative. And because we're all collaborative, we can also be subservient to each other as well as being leaders. Mm.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of my least favorite, um, internet gurus actually said this really well. Uh, she defined trust as, um, being able to, um, capitalize on someone else's best interest. And I liked that phrasing, even though I don't like this person because, um, it frames it in such a way where it's like, yeah, someone else's success benefits you. And there's a clear, it's not just someone else is tricking you into thinking that their success is going to benefit you. It's like there's, you have determined for yourself and experienced the positive effects. Um, And so you intentionally, voluntarily invest in that person's well-being. And they do the same for you, ideally, but best case scenario, they don't have to do it for you in order for you to still get what you need out of the action. That's the kind of sort of sovereign society is nobody actually needs any particular person to invest in them, but every person sees the benefit of investing in every other person. Um, Like, I think this is what regenerative culture is actually about, is is about living in a way that um, you are always mindful of the fact that everything you do has an impact and what kind of impact do you want to create? It's not always going to be really positive, sparkly impact. Sometimes it's going to be, you hurt someone, but can you hurt someone's feelings in a way that benefits them, right?
0: There's a number of ways that Ajna fits into that. But one that stands out to me is at sort of the zero level is just the ability of the gaze to recognize another gaze, right? And it even starts mm-hmm. with the parent-child gazing, where you... You don't just look at the eyes, you look past the eyes to some Mm. kind of uh, legitimate otherness, right, an independent Mm. potential command and witnessing center that's past those eyes, it's in roughly the Ajna region. And when people gaze at each other in this way, uh, as they often do in like satsang gazing scenarios... Right. I'm we're looking into the eyes, but we're also looking through the eyes and that acknowledges there's a brain, there's an independence there. There's a sovereignty. And if we can set up these very basic biological templates like a mother and a child gazing at each other and training the mother's eyes, training that child to know that there's something on the other side of its eyes and that it's in communion with something on the other side of the eyes that are looking at it. Right, if you can set people up like that neurologically, then you have a much better chance of evolving these collaborative sovereignty cultures down the line.
1: I don't think I can top that, Lyman. <laughs> <laughs> I also have to teach a class in an hour, or so yep.